So allow me to read for you one verse as we start, and then we're going to pray, and we'll go in to the rest of our morning. So Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, I'm going to read over you the context of this is a, the people of God in high levels of turmoil because God has told them they aren't living the way he called them to live and they're living in the midst of oppression. So God's judgment is coming down on the people of God and upon the cities that oppress. And God says this, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now that's a message you want to hear when you're riddled in anxiety and questions. Amen? Father, we pray right now that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only you can do. I pray that you would speak to us collectively as a church. God, you would speak to those who walked in that feel like they don't know much about the faith at all. I pray that you'd speak to those in this room who feel like they've been in church and walked with Jesus a really long time. I pray that your spirit would speak in personal ways. You say that nobody knows the mind of God but the spirit of God. So I pray that you would show us the mind and God, specifically the heart of God this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it was history here at Redemption Gilbert that the founding pastor of this church, Tom Schrader, who is my father-in-law, would come back from vacation and he would do some type of series, but the title of the series was always What I Learned on My Summer Vacation. So when I was given uh, a free week, that was just in my head for this reason. It's just been baked in my head. That if you come back off of summer and you come not into a series but into a free week, you begin to reflect on what you learned from your summer vacation. Now, I'll tell you much of what I was thinking about in my summer vacation was fatherhood. And one of the most tangible reasons for that was I spent months with my kids not in school. So you just have fatherhood in front of your face all the time. And kids have this amazing ability to be a mirror. So people will talk about how kids parrot you, but not just that they're a mirror and that they do the things you do oftentimes, but they're a mirror like it just opens up your soul of what a puke you are. (laughs) I'm just being honest. Like I just sit there and go, I'm way better at this when you're at school and I'm at work than I am when you're right in front of my face all the time. So I was reflecting upon fatherhood a lot because of that. The other reason is, is because of Tom, who I said did this series. So uh, we lost him in January, and I just candidly haven't got over it um, and have been reflecting upon it a lot. And my missing of him really made my time with my parents. We leave and go away to Colorado, which is where I'm from, and it just made my time with my parents really sweet. I have an amazing relationship with my parents. I've talked about my relationship with my dad here before, but the reality of aging parents that have meant that much to you when you lost, for me, a father-in-law that I was very close to just made me reflect a ton on fatherhood. 
So I was already reflecting upon that when I had a couple images seared in my mind because both my boys played baseball this summer while they were in Colorado. I know people there, and so they get a chance to play on a couple teams, and one of the teams is a a really good friend of mine who stood with me in my wedding, um, a team that my son Yale, the 11-year-old, who's the second in our four, was playing with. And there were these two images that struck me so much that I captured pictures of them. The first one was this. Um, This guy sitting on his knee is a guy that's become a friend of mine, a very notable athlete, played in the NFL, uh, was actually a quarterback at the college up north, and played in the NFL. I mean, he's he's a guy, right? He's become a very, very, very successful business guy. This is his son, Cole walking off after a game in which they lost, which they didn't lose a lot this summer. They won a lot of games. This team was, is the Parker Sting. So Parker's the Southeast Valley. Uh, Southeast Valley, I just said. That's not, Denver's not the Valley. Southeast Denver um, would be like the Southeast Valley. Um, they're the Parker Sting, and this is a game in which they lost, and Cole, like six others of the seven of the 11 players, all felt like it was their fault. So I don't know if you've ever been around youth sports when kids really care, but they'll come up with like the most minuscule thing that they did and they're convinced it lost the game. So Cole comes off and he's crying like crazy and his dad, you can see, gets on his knee. This is such a profound image to me. Gets on his knee and looks him straight in the eyes. You can tell Cole's not looking at him and this is kind of what happens. Paul talked about this last week with shame is like you don't want to look even into the eyes that love you the most. You just kind of want to turn away. But his dad's looking right at him. He gets at eye level with his son. So clear identification that he's identifying with his son. But one of the the most powerful parts of it is he didn't just sit at a distance from his son. It's like he sat down and you can tell if he got on his knee. I don't know if his son was right there. I can't remember exactly. But he certainly pulls him close, right? Like you can see, he's like right there. And it's a different kind of close than like old school football coach that grabs your jersey and pulls it in like, (laughs) what are you doing, right? That's a very different image than that. This is kind of a tender care moment. The next one of it is so strikingly similar that I took a picture of this one and this guy is literally one of my best friends in the world. So this is when the season ended. We're in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, which by the way, is a far better place to watch youth baseball in the end of July (laughs) than it is here. So if if you wanna know. So the game has ended. I I wanna paint a little bit of a picture of this one too. The kid, his name's Tommy, and he is an absolute Stud baseball player. I mean, I know baseball. I grew up around baseball. This is the kind of kid that you're like, this kid could end up being really good. But he didn't perform the way he wanted to, and he is heaving crying, not just because he didn't play the way he wanted to, but because baseball's over. He loves baseball. And it's over for the summer. He's going to go into football. His dad's like, he doesn't like football very much, but he's really good. But he's heaving, crying. He's going to leave his friends, whatever. My friend Tripp uh, was a Division I athlete, played both football and baseball. And I saw this moment, and I just want to play out for you this moment, and then I will walk through it in just a second. But this was so striking to me because of how long it lasted, Like his son's crying, his dad grabs him and he cries even more. There's something, it's not just getting rid of your tears when you're comforted, but almost frees you to cry more. 
right? And his son's a stud. He's around his friends. Like, 11-year-old boys aren't the first to just be like, you know what, I'm going to cry in front of my buddies, right? <laughs> but his dad grabs him, and his dad keeps grabbing him and pulling him closer, and it lasts a really long time that he's sitting there comforting his son. This was so moving that after, you know, sometimes these youth baseball tournaments are as much for the parents as they are for the kids, maybe more, right? Like parents all have fun together. We're out on this deck in steamboat afterwards. They're listening to country music. People are enjoying things other than just lemonade, right? There's, I mean, it's, it's going on. And at the moment, I say, they're talking about it. I say, hey, Tommy was struggling today. And I wanted my buddy Tripp to know like, the best part of the whole summer was that moment. And he kind of sat there and every dad at the table, you could see their eyes kind of start welling up with tears because they all care about their kids substantially. But I was like, that was the most substantial, significant, and I, I was getting choked. I mean, I'm like, that was an incredibly powerful moment. Then Tripp responds about the picture before and goes, did you see that moment when Preston was with Cole? And it was kind of like all these moments where the guys kind of try to be vulnerable, but then want to be tough. And, you know, it was kind of like they're 11 year olds, almost like they're 11 year olds, right? They're just like, I don't want to get too emotional here. But yes, that was the best moment. And I couldn't help but think about this passage we just read, Zephaniah 317. Read this again and think about these images. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Now, I want to point out that word will save because this is something fundamentally different than an 11-year-old boy in his father's arms. Any good, and I want to say this because I know there are people in this room that don't have great relationships with their dads or didn't have an experience that would testify to a picture like this. But let me say something to you really quickly before we get to this word will. Even if you're in this room, whether you're a woman or a man, and you did not have a great relationship with your father and it bothers you. The reason you're bothered is because you know in the deepest parts of who you are what it should be and it wasn't. And it bothers you, at other times it makes you very angry, but you know what it is. You know the security that a relationship with a father can bring. You know the trust that it can bring. You know the joy and happiness, but ultimately the word I used of security. So in saying that, this passage, the Lord your God is in your midst, is stated to a people who felt extremely vulnerable and were. They were being oppressed. They at times were questioning God at substantial levels. They had anxiety coming at them because of their surrounding situations and their anxiety and depression, frustration, weight and anguish existed in rage within them. And God says, the Lord your God, right? Those are strong words. Like if, God, if there's a God, he's God, right? The Lord your God is in your midst. He's not distant. He isn't way up there. He's in your midst and he's a mighty one who will save. Now an 11-year-old boy feels when he's in the arms of his dad like nothing can penetrate him. And in many ways should feel that way. But the crazy part about it is I know those two men and I know myself. And those two men and myself, let me just speak for myself, are terrified. Here's why. Because fundamentally we know we can't save our kids. And I don't even just mean in a salvific sense of like I can't get them to heaven. Like I can't protect them from disease. I can't ultimately save my kids from despondency. 
I can't save my kids from bad decisions even as much as I'd want to. And as at times my voice escalates in such a way that I try to communicate I can, the reality is they're human beings. I can't. So in those images, they're such powerful images, but there's a reality when you get to the heart of those images, even in the fathers, doing amazing things for their sons, there's still a reality that those men are human beings. They could never say, I'm a mighty one who will save. I'm a bit stronger than you, but at some point that goes away. I'm more experienced than you, but you won't always access the experience. In most of life, I can't protect you from. But God, who's spoken of as a father all throughout the Bible, is in our midst, a mighty one who will save. But then listen to this. This is very parental-type language. He will rejoice over you with gladness. These three verses are the verses that just struck me so strongly in those images, rejoicing over their kids with gladness, even in the midst of their grief, quieting them with their love, exulting over you with loud singing. Now, I know dads also, and I know if you've ever been to a youth sports event of any kind, not just baseball, it's not just that the 11-year-olds want to perform and be good. The image is actually that their fathers want them to perform and be good even more than they want to be good, right? It's why my wife has moments and <clears throat> I'll yell at a baseball game <clears throat> and I've said to her, this is why I don't coach. And she's like, well, that's true. <laughs> and then there's moments I'll yell again and go, this is why I don't sit behind the plate. She's like, well, that's true. And then I yell again and then she initiates and she goes, this is why you should watch from the car. <laughs> You're, you're unacceptable. I don't want to be in public with you, right? So these dads that are sitting on their knees with their kids want the kids to perform. The kids feel down because they didn't perform, but some way in the father's experience and the expertise that's come to it, and probably not even because of their heads, but because of their hearts, they get on their knee or they use their strength to quiet their kids and to go, I love you and it's gonna be okay. Now this is the God of the universe speaking to the people of God and speaking to us that he's stronger than any of those dads. That he's rejoicing over us with gladness. Now let me say this, because of Jesus, the amazing part of New Testament, so you have an Old Testament and a New Testament, and the amazing part of the reality of the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh coming into the world, living a fully sinless life, life the way human beings were meant to live it, full of life, in communion with God, which is why there was no sin. Dying a criminal's death on a cross to open up the way for us to be immersed in God. In Christ, the Son of God, we are called children of God. So in Christ, the same way God when Jesus comes on the scene and is being baptized, says, God himself says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When by faith we come to Christ, by faith and trust we come to Christ, we become children of God, children of God, and we're in union with Jesus. God sings 
over us with loud singing, these are my beloved children in whom I'm well pleased. God brings us in and quiets us in the midst of all of our anxious rage, all of our fears, all of our depression, all of our anguish, and he rejoices over us with gladness. He quiets us with his love. He's proud of us. Not because of the greatness within us, but because we're God's son based upon God's work. We're God's children based upon God's love. Then in the midst of this, these images had struck me so much. I'm thinking this is what I'm learning on my summer vacation, but am I still sure that this is the message that I'm supposed to give? And I sit across from a man that's, you know, a decent amount older than me, like old enough to, maybe just younger than old enough to be my dad. No, he's old enough to be my dad. I'm sitting across from him and I begin to ask him questions. Very successful business guy as well, has worked with very, very successful companies. And I say, hey, how did you grow up? And it comes out that he was a child of a missionary in Zimbabwe. And he begins to speak about his father. And he says, my father was one of these men who had really like meat hook hands, like the really thick hands, really strong forearms. He was a really large man, big, you know, those square jaws, men with big square jaws. And he said he lived his whole life in Zimbabwe and the people there that were a tribal people that they were working with gave him the name Baba Mayo. Baba, B-A-B-A, Mayo, M-A-Y-O. So to us, it's mayo, but this isn't mayonnaise. So I said, I kind of look like this. He's like, well, here's what it means. Baba means father. Mayo means of the heart or of heart or really father of love. So I say, well, how did your father get that name amongst these people? He said, because he loved him like a father. When there was a sick child that nobody wanted to touch, he would touch them. When there was an anxious father, he would open his door and bring that father into his home. When there was a mother who was now a widow who couldn't care for the child, he would help care for the child. When there was a community in need of water, he would commute miles and miles to get water to bring it back. And they labeled, he didn't label himself Baba Mayo, father of the heart. And many of these people came to know God through Jesus Christ because of this man's love. Because he rejoiced over them with gladness. Because there were moments he quieted them with his love. Because there were moments he rejoiced over them with singing. Here's why he did that. Because he had been rejoiced over with gladness by God himself. Because he had moments of anxiety in which he went to God the Father to be quieted by his love. Well, then the man that I'm sitting across from at this breakfast makes this statement. He says, the way the Bible talks about inheritance is so different than the way our world operates. And I said, Jeff, what are you talking about? He said, inheritance is receiving a name and our world is all about making a name. Well, then I'm like, the napkin's out, and I'm looking at the waiter like, hey, do you have a pen? And so 
I, I literally sit there for a minute and I get this pen, the waiter you know, takes the pen out and I write down inheritance and then I write this statement and all the while God's like, this is what you're talking about. This is what you learned and I want you to learn on your summer vacation. So I write inheritance and then right under it I say, is about receiving a name, not making a name. All of a sudden I went back and I thought about these pictures I had in my phone of my friends. In this moment, fundamentally, the boys, the 11-year-old boys, in a world that's saturated with make a name for themselves, felt like, I haven't made a name for myself. And the dads getting on eye level with them and sitting with them and pulling them close are saying, you're my son, which is saying, you've received a name. Don't worry about making a name. Because there's going to, and the dads are saying it without saying it, there's going to be all kinds of moments, in fact, more moments in your life where you don't make a name for yourself. But how many of us in this room live in despondency fundamentally because you're not the mom you think you should be? You don't look the way everybody else looks at school. You haven't measured up business-wise the way everybody thought you would be business-wise. You're not the kind of preacher or pastor in in my setting. I'm not the dad that I so want to be. I want to make a name for myself as a dad. I want to make a name for myself in my world. I want to make a name for myself. Then my friend says this, the heart of the devil's worldview is to try to convince us that we have to make a name for ourselves. So I said, I write that down. Are you the pastor or am I? Like I'm writing this down. And then I thought to myself, well, man, Genesis chapter 11, there's this amazing scene after sin comes into the world. If you look it up, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel are when all these people can communicate to each other and they have this grand idea that we're going to build a tower to God. Because they so badly wanted to reach God? Question mark. Is that why they built it? Did they, did they say, we're going to build a tower all the way to the heavens to reach God because we so need God. That's not what it says. It says, they said, let's build a tower to God to make a name for ourselves. And God says, if they try to do this, they'll try to do anything. He confuses their languages, spreads them out over the whole entire earth. Ultimately, you get the sense of the tower's destroyed under the judgment of God. Now, think about this for a minute. Was the judgment of God just to say to those people, oh, you're so bad? Or was the judgment of God fundamentally saying, your life will be hell if you constantly try to make a name for yourself? I'm offering you a reality to be my kids in which you receive a name, unmerited, unearned, a life in which you set out to self-create is in fact hell, because you can never create it as good as your dreams made it up to be. You never measure up to everybody else's standards. For that sake, you never measure up to your own standards. The judgment of God is always the working of the Father heart of God who loves you, who loves us. 
A dad who gets on his knee and pulls his son close and says to them, buddy, I don't care if you ever play a day of baseball as long as you live. This is exact words of my father to me. My dad, who's an iconic baseball coach, a son who loved baseball, and that's all I ever wanted to do. Anybody that said, what are you going to do when you get older? I want to play baseball. I want to play baseball. It's all I ever did. The power of a father going, I don't care if you ever play a day of baseball in your life. You could do anything, and he would go through it. You could be a mechanic. You could be an artist. You could be a ballerina. You could be a news anchor. You could be a scientist. You could be a teacher. I don't care. I love you. That's what my friends were saying to those kids. Like, buddy, it's going to be okay. Like, if you get hurt, it's going to be okay. If you stink, it's going to be okay. If you don't have to make a name because you're my kid. You've received a name. Now, hear me in this, because this is what I'm convinced God is speaking in the simple truth of the good news of the gospel all the time. And that he was telling me to this, this summer, I'm not giving you something, Tyler, to learn this summer so you can speak it to everybody when you get back up in August. I want you to learn it because I love you. And here's the truth. You've received a name. Stop trying so hard to make a name for yourself. Self-created reality is hell. Enjoy me. Biblical inheritance is the receiving of a name. Biblical inheritance fundamentally isn't just receiving stuff of value. It's receiving that of most ultimate value, which is God himself. The offer of the gospel people is that we get God the God the Bible says we were made by and for. The one our hearts are crying for all the time. It's about the reception of a name. Unmerited. Unearned. God speaks about this inheritance in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is Father. Of the Lord Jesus and when we're in him, we are his children. And he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now God owns it all. So when you become a child of God, you become an heir. When you become an heir, you receive. Receive what? All of God and all that God has. That's why Paul can, can say, hey, who, he who didn't spare his own son, he didn't spare his own son. He gave up Jesus, gave him up for us all. Will he not then also with him graciously give us all things? Why are you chasing after all this stuff? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Happiness, deep delight and joy doesn't come from you getting the thing you so desperately want that's just out of your reach. It's getting the God who's in your midst and has been around you all the time. The one whom Paul says it's in him, we live and move and have our being. The reception of that name by his love. Now, the other part of inheritance, and it's true in receiving a name, is that receiving a name is not just about privileges, it isn't just about privileges. It's also about living up under that name. So back to that breakfast. 
when I kept pressing on Jeff, I said, Jeff, inheritance, right? It's receiving a name, not making a name. And then he stops and says, and Christian practice is all about living into and out of that name. Christian practice, and that word struck me because I've been thinking about it a lot. When I grew up in Denver, Colorado, I grew up in a community where there were a lot of Jewish people. And among Jews and non-Jews, when you would talk about a Jewish family, there would always be this question when it was stated they're Jewish that the question would be, are they practicing Jews? And right now, you know, it's this big question, you know, around the challenges of evangelicalism. You hear about the evangelical vote and you hear about all this. And I'm convinced that the time we live in shouldn't be so much about us identifying with the name Baptist or Lutheran, Orthodox or Catholic or evangelical. But the fundamental question of the day for those of us who call ourselves Christians is, are we practicing Christians? Are we practicing Christians? Not church-going Christians, not celebrate the holidays Christians, not I'm a Christian because I'm an American, not a Christian because I'm nothing else, but are you a practicing? Are we practicing Christians? And there's a lot of promise with practicing the things God told us to do. Now hear that before we end. There is a ton of promise. In fact, there's contingent promises in the Bible based upon practicing God. Now you may go contingent, contingent, and you're, you know, it's a good idea. Type it in, learn the, the word, it's great. I didn't know this word either. I remember I heard it in a song and I'm like, that's a good word. And I typed it in. It means dependent, they're tied together. So all throughout the New Testament, when Jesus is teaching, he'll make a promise and then say your reception of that promise, not salvation, don't mistake me, but even in salvation, we must believe. But then there's these promises of abundant life. There's these promises of rest. There's this word blessed that comes out in John 13, 14, 15, where he says, blessed are you. And the word blessed means happy. Happy are you if you do the things I told you to do. Well, this is like my dad. I mean, there were these moments where my dad would go, Tyler, you're a Johnson. Here's how Johnsons live. And then when it came to sports, like I think I've said this and some of you guys have heard me say this before, he would say to me, Johnsons aren't fast. And what that means is you're slow. <laughs> Johnsons aren't tall and strong, which means you're short, flubby, and weak. So... You're going to have to work harder than everybody else. And if you work harder, good things can come. I was reading a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, who's fantastic this week. And Spurgeon made this statement about a passage I love and use often. And it's the statement when Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, that sounds very similar to that passage in Zephaniah. Like when you need to be quieted, when everything feels like work. Another translation says, come to me all who are weary, like exhausted. 
and heavy laden, when everything feels like work and everything feels like a load and heavy, God's saying, come to me. And in this verse, you know very clearly that what this is saying to all of us in this room is that you have to ask yourself, like there are places you're going right now to relieve your load, to find rest from your labor. Where is it? Are you trying to do it on your own? Like that's self-created reality. That's hell, right? Are you looking for it in places that are created things that never have the capacity to do that? Are you looking for it in another person, right? That's unfair to them. They can't live up to that reality. That's what I want to try to teach my kids is come to me for a lot of things, but the ultimate things I can't do for you. If we are not going to God, and that's what Jesus is saying, Jesus who is God is saying, come to me, who, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But Charles Spurgeon said this, we have all kinds of people, and I'm going to apply it to us. He's saying, there are all kinds of us in this room who've applied the first verse. It's like we've encountered the exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, the deliverance of our sin, but we're still living in a land of anxiety and wilderness. This is what Spurgeon is saying, because we've only taken the first step. We've only gone to God to deal with our sin and we're like, hey, I got heaven now, but we still live in an earthly hell. And he says, the reason is we've never taken the second step, which is the next verse, which all comes about through receiving a name. In receiving the name of Jesus, you take his yoke upon you. Yoke is his teaching. And he says, learn from me. The late Dallas Willard would say, we need to be with God. God, with Christ, we need to be with him, learning to be like him. That's worth writing down. With Jesus, learning to be like him. That's what he's saying. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. And we get scared, but this is God. Like, he's a slave driver. He goes, no, you're totally wrong. Satan in the world has misrepresented God. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'm the perfect father who gets on his knees and looks in your eyes. I'm the stronger father who quiets you with his love. I am a bigger partying father who rejoices over you with loud singing. Louder than you sing the Michael Jackson soundtrack, right, to your family. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is contingent, right? Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls if you take his yoke upon you. Trust him. He's good. He's gentle and lowly in spirit. And you learn from him and you practice Christ. Receiving the inheritance has privileges and responsibilities. And along with the practice comes the promise rest for our souls. Let's pray. God, we love you and pray that by your spirit, who is the deposit, the guarantee of our inheritance, you would train us to be like Jesus. God, I pray for all of those in this room who when they hear the call to do what Jesus says, God, they get overwhelmed. I just pray that you'd make it easy for them and simple that you would show them that your teaching, your yoke is light and easy. And God, it brings huge promise, promise even beyond rest, 
the promise of a full life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.